Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Match Lip Podcast. My name is Frank Angeloni. On today's show, we're going to be talking to the owner of Dragon's Lair, David. Uh, before we get to that, if you haven't already listened to our previous episode with Jared of Deck and Dice, I highly suggest you go check out that episode and then come back and listen to this one. And without any further ado, I'd like to welcome David to the program. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to have you on today. So what can you tell us, David, about your initial foray into the game store world? You know, I started reading comic books when I was in my, oh goodness, probably about 12 or 13. There was a comic book store in Dallas, Texas, Big D Books and Comic, and I used to go there and volunteer to uh, sort their paperbacks and play chess with the owner. And, uh, you know, I, I was exposed to d and I started playing d and in 1979 at lunch uh, at a table in at Bishop Lynch High School, which was a lot of fun with my friends John and Paul, uh, which makes it sound like the Beatles, but we're really not. Um. Let's see, I worked, when I came to college, I made the mistake of uh, starting to work at a comic and game store, and uh, honestly, it was a mistake. Uh, I, I joke that it would be called stalking today. I met a uh, friend of mine at uh, a Doctor Who uh, showing. She was wearing elf ears and an elf quest costume, so, you know, that was uh, attraction at first sight. Uh, we actually did become uh, engaged for some time, some time before deciding not to uh, marry, and I'm still really good friends with her to the day. But she worked at uh, Capital City Comics, and I got a job there as well, and ended up managing there, and that uh, fell over and sank into the swamp. And uh, though I really do appreciate the Ken Davison, the owner, um, I then worked for Phoenix Comics, which was started by someone who used to work at Capital City, and it fell over and sank into a swamp. And at that point, I kind of felt obligated to open a store, even though I was still attending UT at the time, and uh, thus Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy was born. I essentially walked up and uh, on my girlfriend at the time and uh, waited till she turned around and surprised her, as you do, and uh, asked her, so how much do you think it would cost to open a comic and game store? I then turned around and walked away, leaving her gasping, uh, gaping at me. Uh, we brainstormed names and came up with the name Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy. And here we are today. And where is the store currently located in Texas? And let me let me do let me correct one possible misunderstanding. I am no longer the owner of any of the stores. Uh, I am the franchisor and founder. Um, in 2015, I sold the Austin location, which is on West Anderson and Burnett in Austin, Texas, to Angie Yackley, who was a my general manager for many years. And we have stores in, two stores in San Antonio, one in Houston, and one in Columbus, Ohio. And we're currently working on opening a store in San Marcos, Texas. So if I understand correctly, based on what you just described, you no longer are the owner of the specific stores, just the franchisor, if I understand correctly. That's correct. I always felt like if I was doing something for 20 or so years, even though I loved it, and I do lo did love owning comic and game stores, 
that I did not want the only thing on my corpus vitae when my corpus was done to be owner of Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy. So I sort of had an intentional desire to change professions at some point. Um, and it took me a little longer than 20 years, but uh, being a franchisor of the stores lets me help people open stores, which was one of the favorite, my favorite things, uh, allows me to use my contacts in the industry and also allows me to do something different enough that I don't feel like it's the same thing that I did for 20 plus years. So part of it is measured in the ability of things not getting stale to be able to expand upon whether it be other interests or just to keep things fresh as, as a business owner overall. All the above. Yes. Um, you know, I have a very eclectic series of interests. Um, not only am I the franchisor and founder of Dragon's Lair Comics and Fantasy, I am part owner of an aerial studio, Lachey Movement Company in Austin. And uh, I'm also a pole dancer and pole dance instructor. I'm also a certified professional hypnotist. And how long have you found yourself like being drawn to different aspects that may be considered eclectic, like you're saying, or just like your various array of knowledge of, of various industries. How did that all come about? Like, was that started at a young age or did that develop as you, as you got older? Oh gods. I think it started as, at a young age. I have been a science fiction and fantasy enthusiast since I was in uh, grade school. Uh, you know, I, I had an eye issue that kept me from being able to read the blackboard from the third row back. And uh, fortunately a third grade teacher figure that out and uh, realized I needed, needed glasses. And at that point, I became a voracious reader. And one of the things about science fiction and fantasy is that it takes all the different ideas of all these different creative and uh, imaginative people and gives them to you in a world that is uh, a fantasy world or a world in the future or a world with time travel. And so you're exposed to all these different ideas all at once. Uh, and that made me desire not to have a life that was, ah, goodness, of one level, if that makes sense. So, And with the game store in particular, you said one of your passions was letting people open their own game store and helping them do that. What is your role involved with helping them to do so? once you franchise out the particular store? Sure, sure. Uh, as the franchisor, I uh, help them find a location. I help them negotiate with a landlord for the lease. Um, I help do the store design and the store layout. Uh, so if there are walls that need to be knocked out, and there generally are, and uh, I help them with designing the store so it looks professional and easy to uh, walk around and uh provide a good experience for our customers. I help them looking at using the historical data of all the stores. We, I help them pick out the games and comics to bring in. Um, I joke that above every store in invisible ink, it says diversity is life. So we carry a wide variety of different pop culture and comic and game items, because if you are a monoculture, if something changes in the industry, I've seen too far too many stores die from that. So 
I want my stores to have a diverse offering for a diverse number of people. Um, I help set the culture, uh, though a lot of that is also that I find very good franchisees who work with the culture of the store, which is being uh, very LGBTQ plus uh, allied and uh, supportive. Um, you know, we are, we, when I came into the comics and games industry, comics readers and games, game players were not highly regarded. Uh, we were the people who were likely to get melvined in the, uh, high school bathrooms. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do was provide a store where people could feel proud about their hobbies and the things they love. And that continues to this day. And I also find people who love the industry who want to open stores. And I enjoy working with them. One of the things, it's going to be hard to shut me up, obviously. Um, one of the things that I tell my potential franchisees is that opening a store is a vocation as well as a job. Uh, so far, Auntie Annie's has not sent me a cease and desist for saying that you can make more money. Uh, opening an Auntie Annie's probably and have much less stress than opening a comic and game store. Uh, but on the other hand, you're going to love most of the days uh, owning a comic and game store. We have the best customers. One of my franchisees just sent me a uh, picture of a 3D mini that a customer did of our logo uh, just off just for fun and gave to my uh, franchisee in Houston, Robert Pearl. Uh, so, I mean, this sort of thing is the sort of joy that you can experience being in this sort of industry. Uh, you know, sometimes there are a lot of stresses as well. And how, when you're choosing the products to have at the store and, and making sure you have a wide selection of various things, how do you know what to choose based on what's going to sell well this way you can appeal to a wide customer base rather than just being like say like you're just a comic store for example right right i mean a lot of it is historic looking at the historical performances of other products from a specific publisher or writer or artist uh, so for example if we're looking at Frosthaven, we would look at how Gloomhaven sold and project from that. We'd also think about the the uh, economy at the time. Right now, we're at a time with inflation where higher product, higher priced products like Frosthaven are selling more slowly. Um, it also is going to vary on the city that the store is located in. So a store that's in Austin, which has a higher per household income on average, then San Antonio is more likely to sell more Frosthaven, for example, or other hundred plus dollar games than a store in some place that does not have quite as high a household income. So, but we also, one of the things that's great is because we deal with our customers directly and get to know them on a name by name and uh, hobby by hobby and interest by interest basis is we base our orders sometimes wrongly on what we think that they're going to want because we have a personal connection with our customers. And how did you go about developing that personal relationship where, you know, you know, the, the customer's name and, you know, cause that's something that I think anybody can relate to saying, you know, if, if you go into an establishment where people are familiar with you and recognize you by first name, that you're more likely to go back there due to that 
relationship building. How was that implemented? Like, was it, I mean, I could assume it was a cognizant effort on your end. Um, how did you go about though, with multiple locations, being able to facilitate the remembering of all your customers' names? One of the best things that we have is subscriptions for comic book subscribers. When I owned the stores and worked the front directly, one of the fun things that I would do is I would, of course, I, we have all these names, 400 and 500 or so subscriptions. And we see these people, uh, you know, every week. Uh, one of the things I love about comic books is that because of the periodical nature of the comics, people come in every week so we get to know them well. I would recognize customers coming in by name. I'd pick out their subscriptions and meet them at the door with their subscription in hand before they even told me their name, which was always fun to watch the uh, reaction uh, when people realized, oh, yes, these are my books. I've been recognized. Uh, you know, that was kind of fun. Uh, like I said, owning a comic and game store has always brought me a lot of joy. Uh, it's not hard to uh, talk to customers to find out what their interests are. And when it is, you know, we can do surveys that uh, encourage people to tell us what they want. Um, again, what is that? Taylor Swift? Is it Taylor Swift who says, oh, it's Beyonce, isn't it? Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> I'm trying to stay hip. In any case, uh, you know, one of the reasons we got into Magic the Gathering back in the early, the late 90s was one of my customers attended a convention and brought set, came back and said, David, this is a product that you're really going to sell a lot of. These are going to be great. It's a great game. You should bring some in. So I brought in a case of Magic the Gathering. Now, a case is not very much, especially back then, but I would not have known about that or the buzz around it if one of my customers had not reached out to me to let me know. So there's, it's really not hard to find out what your customers want because they like to talk to you. <laughs> we're, we're, we are all people who love comics and games and share an enthusiasm. And we have an opportunity to connect with each other by talking about things we love. And for you with your journey with comics, is that something you're still fond of in terms of reading them till today? What was your favorite comic that you used to read or still read? You know, that's, that is the difficulty. I, I tend to uh, not read as many comics now as I used to. Uh, and even when you're, when you love comics and you own a comics and game store, especially when I was actively owning the stores, I didn't have time to read many comics or read many games. Uh, so I would pick up an issue here or an issue there. Saga is a great comic, and I love the Saga very much. Um, I have a habit of collecting omnibus editions, so I still love Sandman. Just too many comics to mention. I used to, when I was uh, first starting out, I would read the New Teen Titans and X Men and Power Pack and uh, even Amethyst, Amethyst Princes of Gym World. Uh, you know, just comics that have fun stories, Atari Force, you know, there was a comic book based on the Atari uh, video games, and that was fun. So just stories with good art or interesting art and interesting stories. Uh, I started off pri probably in, hi in high school or grade school reading the Neil Adams Batman with Ra's al Ghul. Uh, so I was exposed to really good stories growing up. 
And then from the opposite side of the coin, from the business standpoint, with so many new titles released in the comics industry these days, compared to even if you go back, just say to the nineties, yes. how do you decide which ones to order? And it seems like it would, from a business standpoint, would seem kind of a challenge outside of judging from previous orders, what comics to order when you have such a vast array of titles to choose from and not that certainty of like, oh, there's only 10 titles, so I can order all of them, if that makes sense. And now there's, you know, you know, so many titles, it's almost, you can't read them all, essentially. Again, it, it, we do have a pretty robust subscription system, so we can see where interests come and go. Uh, the subscription program actually allows us to see when what books are done by a given author. So we can look at what those authors' books are, books sold in the past, and uh, just our orders for that. And, you know, it gives us a pretty good guess. I mean, it is an art rather than a science to a large extent, but there's a lot of scientific, there's a lot of scientific basis on uh, what you can base your orders. But yes, it is hard. And uh, I like to joke when I'm training my franchisees that uh, publishers Public, uh, publishers punish us for our sins when they do us do give offer us weekly titles instead of monthly titles, uh, because then you don't have a chance to see how a title is doing before you have to order the last copy in the series. Uh, and you know, I was going to say that I actually started playing games in 1979, playing RPGs, but I also played a lot of uh, games from SPI. Uh, things like Battlefleet Mars or Freedom in the Galaxy uh, and some Avalon Hill games as well. So I came into the game side of things very early as well. And you mentioned that with D&D as well, too. What was your journey with D&D like? <laughs> I started uh, picking up modules and playing both D&D and Champions at uh, Big D Books and Comics and some friends there. I had Prospero the Flying Mage, who had a Cape of Flying that he found uh, very early on. So I remember that character fondly, you know, uh, just playing over the lunchroom table with friends and occasionally at home. I unfortunately tried to DM and I assumed that if you were, you know, leveling up and if you had one bat at level one, you know, you needed a hundred bats if you were going to be at level a hundred, but that's not necessarily the right way to scale things. But I've learned since then. I, uh, Used to joke that I probably would not be able to play D&D again until I was in the retirement home. And uh, fortunately, I have been able to uh, DM some in the past few years, which has been a lot of fun. I have a regular Tuesday game uh, that went on through the pandemic remotely. Oh, that's good. At least you still find the time to play. I've noticed with some of the stores I've interviewed, uh, the owners don't have the same time as they would like to play the games that got them initially into it, but it seems like you make the time for yourself to do so. I'm very fortunate. I really am. Uh, and franchising is a different uh, model than being the franchisor is a different model than being in the game store itself. One of the reasons why I don't own any stores currently is I don't believe that I would easily have the time to both run a store and run the franchise. Just owning a store can be so demanding on your time. I mean, it's some, it's a job that you love, but it is a hard, it is hard work. I, I, tell my potential franchisees and I lived this when I w was a store owner that you should expect to spend, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week in your store. 
Uh, and generally, especially starting out, it tends to be more towards the 60. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of the time commitment involved with being the owner of the store, from your time of having done that side of the business, what would you say was the biggest challenge of being an owner? Both comics and games go in cycles. So there are going to be times when comics are down and games are up or games are down and comics are up. You know, I've seen a lot of cycles. Um, Magic the Gathering started a huge number of spinoff CCGs, most of which died very quickly. But it cost a lot of money to try to bring those CCGs in. And uh, so, you know, I did see the Fallen Empires crash in the 90s. We went from where we had 29 stores, some of them just uh, sports card stores that got into Magic the Gathering, that overextended themselves. And, you know, we went from 29 stores selling CCGs to nine the next year to seven the year after that, I believe. So one of the principles of the stores is that we exist for the long term. We work with our customers. We do not treat our customers as something we prey upon. Um, I saw a lot of people in the 90s also, there was a black and white comic book boom. And a lot of retailers, especially at conventions, would try to tell people, oh, you should pay me $50 for this comic book. It's going to be worth several hundred dollars years down the line, which was not true. Uh, they were predatory on their the people who trusted them for their knowledge. And we've never done that. Um, truthfully, if we get something that's of limited availability, I try to encourage my franchisees to, instead of selling a single or, you know, five packs of this limited dragon from Magic that came out, you know, 10 or 15 years ago now, rather than selling that for a high price, put in an auction with it being a donation to a charity. Uh, You, one, are giving a worthy cause a nice boost in finances, and two, you you are not seeming to predate on your customers who you rely on day to day and have a connection with. There's no feeling of gouging there. When your customers know that you are taking an auction for a small product and giving it to a worthy cause, they don't feel like you're trying to take advantage of them. Um, so that is, those are some of the challenges I've seen. Right now, comics are in a tough place. Um, but I also have confidence, having seen enough cycles come and go, that it is likely that they will recover and go on and be better than they were before, at least for a while until the cycle repeats itself again. Do you think any of that with the comic side of things is due to the consistent reboots that they do of the various storylines or when they do a whole reboot of, you know, the entire line, for example? I don't think so. Um, now, we have customers who collect comics who've been with us since we first opened back in 86, uh, who love comics and who enjoy them a lot. But the reason that you had the reboots was that at some point, the big two, Marvel and DC, did some research, I hope, that suggested that comic book new comic book readers enter the market every two years. So there tends to be a recap issue or a reboot 
in comics approximately every two years. Now, that may be old data, uh, so I don't know that that's still the case. But I don't think, I know the perception is that comics reboot all the time. I don't actually see that as being true. The caveat there is that I am not in the stores on a regular basis, uh, so I'm a step removed from that day-to-day knowledge that my franchisees have. When did that whole process of rebooting start? Just to give like like a brief example of you know my relationship with comics when I first started reading them was in the '90s, and I personally oh, very good. yeah, and I and I love them still to this day. Like I go through cycles though of when I read them. Um, and I don't remember the reboots occurring as much. So I was curious from any inside knowledge you might have of when you recall first seeing that, how far that dates back. Well, I would even say that, uh, Frank Miller's dark Knight, in a way was a reboot of, uh, Batman and also Batman year one back in the goodness, late eighties. That's a great point. Early nineties. Um, I mean, you have the DC New 52 that came out um, back then. Um, I'm, I'm not positive the year, but probably uh, mid-aughts. Um, and please feel free to correct me. Um, but, I mean, changing up, bringing in new characters, and, uh, you know, you have, uh, let's see, who was it? Oh, golly. Beware the Claws of the Cat uh, came out. It was in the 70s. And that character turned into Tigra or Tigra, depending on how you pronounce her name, uh, which was a, you know, characters evolve and change. Uh, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing as long as it is done to bring the characters into a more modern setting and uh, with more modern sensibilities and is well written and well drawn. I think the problem occurs if the characters are not well thought out and there are not interesting stories. Did that answer the question at all? <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, no, definitely does. It's just something that's been on my mind with, with comics and in general, because when I look back at, you know, my buying patterns over the years as a consumer, I would, I would always notice that I would start off always buying my favorite title, which has always uh-huh. been amazing Spider-Man. And then, and then I would delve into other titles, um, you know, within the Marvel universe mostly is where I, I live <laughs> and, yeah, and, and I would pick up other titles and then I would notice this problem where, all right, I'm collecting too many of these to where, and then next Wednesday comes around and I have no time to read them. Right. So I think back to what you said earlier which was like based when things were more of like a monthly release. And that actually always worked well for me personally. And then they go into bi-monthly and then some of them are weekly. And it almost becomes this paradigm where you almost can't keep up. So it's if if it's from a consumer standpoint, a difficulty, I I would imagine at at some level, it's difficulty for a store too. Oh gods, yes. We order our uh, comics and games and other products non-returnable. So there are certainly cases where we will order a comic book and then it won't come out for a year or two. One of the issues I referred to earlier in the 90s with the black and white crash There's also, in the later 90s, eh, actually about the same time, 
an image crash. So Image Comics came out with some really popular titles. Retailers sold huge numbers of these titles and then placed their orders for the next books. Well, in a lot of cases, those books did not come out for a year or two afterwards. Retailers were locked in for the numbers that they ordered. The interest in those titles waned greatly in the uh, between the time when the first issue, ha which had a lot of buzz, came out and the other issues finally came out. And so a lot of retailers, having no choice but to accept and pay for these books, went out of business. One of the things I think that has been a benefit of the store stores over the years is we tend to be very conservative in some ways. Uh, we're aware of the fallen empires crash. We're aware of the image crash. We encourage our our readers not to buy for collectability, but because they love the stories. So we do not pat, we do not chase the collectible dollar. Um, now that may mean that in the short term we do not maximize our profits, but on the other hand, we build relationships with our customers that last decades. Getting back to your question, I do think that weekly books is our mistake. Uh, Bi-weekly books are a mistake because, as you say, they over overload the reader um, and they make it very difficult on the store owner to order accurately. Similarly, in past years, you know, we would have a monthly title that might take three months or longer between issues. And that is a problem on another side because interest wanes. We're going to take a quick break from this podcast to talk about our sponsor, Cardboard Shuffle. Cardboard Shuffle was our 10th podcast interview here at The Match Slip with store owner Mark. Mark has expanded his brand and has produced his own card sleeves called Shuffle Shields. Shuffle Shields come in packs of 100 premium matte card sleeves for standard size trading cards. They contain no PVC and are acid-free. I have 17 packs of Shuffle Shields card sleeves to give away to listeners of the podcast and followers of The Match Slip on social media. Requests for a free pack of card sleeves shipped for free to you will be processed on a first-come, first-served basis. To receive your free pack of Shuffle Shields, you'll need to send a screenshot that you're following Cardboard Shuffle on Facebook to frank at thematchlip.com. Good luck, and back to the episode. It's very interesting, too, how you mentioned with interest waning. Like, I will find myself, I'll read for, like, four months, five months at a time, and then you start to see the stacks of books piling up and you're like, well, I need to take a break and read these before I continue getting more. And you actually wind up, I know this happens to me every time, I wind up stopping and I, and I then we'll go back to it a couple of years later or so and get back to it when a reboot happens again. And, and it kind of seems like what you're referring to with that's kind of why the reboots take place. It's almost like they know that in a way they're overloading. And the stores feel it from the financial standpoint. And so you have this almost like cyclical effect, I guess. I think so. Um, you know, and normally there are two different aspects of the uh, comics and game stores. There's the forward facing, which is where we do not talk about, you know, we might have frustrations with publishers and distributors, but, you know, that's not something that our customers our customers are there to enjoy their experience. They don't need to hear about how we're frustrated with X publisher or Y distributor. Um, my interpretation is that this is more of a behind the scenes kind of podcast. So I'm going to say that, you know, sometimes the 
store owners often see themselves as the curators of the market. Uh, we care about providing a great experience for our customers and supporting products and, you know, ensuring that our customers connect with the games and stories. And, you know, often we see that the publishers, especially the largest publishers, are more beholden to their boards and to their stockholders. And therefore, the drivers for them is to have a profitable quarter. Whereas we want to make sure that items come out in a sustainable way that our customers will enjoy and appreciate. And sometimes these two issues are in conflict. We find that with smaller publishers, especially in the games industry, the games industry is wonderful. We get to talk to publishers and designers and writers, and we all share this love and enthusiasm for the market. Um, you know, I mean, Anne-Marie and Justin at Fireside, they love talking about Castle Panic and about the neat things they do and about the neat mechanics in the games and how they have a version that, uh, for children, my first Castle Panic, I mean, they love this stuff. We love this stuff. We're able to connect with them. It's a lot easier to do that with, uh, smaller and mid-tier publishers than, you know, people that, uh, that are re represented on the New York Stock Exchange. So do you find the conversations and chances to talk with publishers occurring like just in like standard like meetings, whether you're doing a phone call or is it more likely to occur at like a convention? Um, both. And let me, before I, we go on, let me add a caveat to this. Even at the places that where the publishers, I mean, the publishers are traded on the stock exchange, the people working at the publishers themselves tend to love the love what they do. They love the uh, neat cards. They love the neat games they, that come out. They love the storylines. Uh, for example, in uh, 5e or any of the role-playing games. So I don't mean to suggest that the people who are working at the companies are disconnected from the customer experience or from a love of what they do. Uh, you know, no one goes into the comics and games industry because they wish to become a multimillionaire. Uh, we do it because we love what we're connecting with. There is a annual Gamma Expo uh, that happens in, well, uh, this year it's going to be in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and it is specifically for store owners and uh, publishers and distributors to get together and talk about the industry. We have a lot of retailer-to-retailer -retailer correspondence or, or seminars, so telling people how to open a game store or comics. Well, game store, because it's uh, Gamma is the Game Manufacturers Association, and you can find out more about them at gamma.org. I am not currently on the retailer board, but I have been in the past. Um, but yeah, we get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. I get to talk to Justin and Anne-Marie. I get to you know, talk to the fine people at Renegade Games. Uh, I talked to Kristen Looney uh, from Looney Labs. It's, uh, it's, and we just, you know, we have this trade floor for two to four days a week for this, that week. And we get to go wander around and talk to uh, the people we admire in the industry. What would you say is 
probably one of the most unique experiences that you've gotten out of the Gamma convention that was like a, whether it was something from the past or something in the, uh, in the present that you were like, wow, this is going to be like either a good product or that was some really great information we gathered from the publishers. I'm going to, I'm going to actually not do Gamma. I'm going to go to San Diego comic convention, okay. comic con, uh, just for a second, because one of the best most amazing experiences I ever had was Will Eisner coming down to the retailer's lounge. I don't know if you're familiar with Will Eisner or not, um, but he is one of the, or he was one of the people who basically started investing in graphic novel, the for graphic novel format. He wrote uh, comic books from, you know, I'm, I'm, probably the thirties or forties starting then. And I'm going to be embarrassed if I miss, uh, but essentially he was one of the grand masters of comic books. I'm going to say, uh, and he came down to the retailer's lounge, uh, at 90 or so, and was basically talking to retailers, just sitting around talking with each other about how important they were and how much he appreciated retailers in the industry. Um, and, you know, Will Eisner is up there with uh, Stan Lee, in my opinion. Certainly his stories are dated at this point, but nevertheless, that was really amazing. I think one of the things that uh, retailers take for granted is that we do have the opportunity to go to Gamma and talk with people like, like Scott Gaeta or, oh goodness, um, names are escaping me right now, but even people, well, you know, just people in the industry who I think are uh, in a casual and intimate basis that, uh, you know, are held in such high regard by our customers and enthusiasts in the industry. Um, and I think we take that for granted sometimes. I mean, we are colleagues, we're working together, but nevertheless, these are really intelligence and creative people. Uh, one of my views has always been that we are, we are so fortunate to be able to present to our customers products that are created by these people who have such great imaginations and great talents and artistic talents. Uh, we're just very fortunate. And from those conversations that you've had, both with publishers and both from your game stores that you franchise out, what are the CCGs outside of magic? Because everybody knows magic is, is the big one. What are some of the others that you're noticing that are doing really well? Uh, Pokemon is doing great. Uh, a little less than it was last year, but still very popular. Um, One Piece and Digimon are doing well in the industry. Oh, goodness. I mean, besides the fact that it's difficult to get it in, uh, Lorcana is very popular. Um Many of my, uh, one of the things I appreciate about my franchisees is that rather than just selling all the limited amount of products that they got to one or two customers, they actually limited customers to a couple of packs each day so that a greater number of people could be able to have some of the game and uh, have a chance to play the game with some cards. So, you know, it's not the, I guess, how arguably you could say that, uh, and I'm digressing all over the place again. Um, it could be easier and less costly just to sell to the one or two people who came in first. But my franchisees will 
limit the packs and sometimes take heat from that because they will want to make sure that the customers have a good experience and have an opportunity to buy the cards rather than people wanting to flip them. Um, my franchisees, uh, for example, will sometimes take the wrapping off a case and then sell the, the uh, packs individually to people rather because they want to make sure that the individual customers who want to play and experience the games have that opportunity and ensure that whatever uh, cards we're selling are not going on eBay or some other platform at an inflated price. We'd rather sell them for, you know, a reasonable price than to see them go off and uh, be at an unattainable price for our customers. Do your franchisees do any selling of product online or is it mostly done in store? It's mostly done in store. Um, I, When the pandemic came around, so for various reasons, which I can go into if you wish, um, I had reserved online sales to the franchise. So essentially, none of my franchisees had the ability to sell online. Uh, and I'll go into it a little bit. We, one of the things I tell my franchisees is that before, and even before they sign, is that everything we sell can be found less expensive online. What we do is we build and support a community, and they support us. You would not believe how much our community supports us when we go through tough times. So I did not want to set up a an occasion where anyone would be discounting online and have things at full price in their stores because there's obviously a disconnect there. Um, also by concentrating on our in-store experience, we're able to connect with our customers and support our community. And we support our community when people need help or, you know, we, we often participate in pride parades. We provide a safer space for members of all communities at our stores. And so we work well with our customers. On, I mean, it's a very connected experience between customer and store owner. Once the pandemic hit, I, of course, had to open up online sales. But even then, uh, our online sales became minimal because we were so concentrated on the in-store experience. So with the number of stores that you've franchised out the brand to, how many employees are, are each store employing to be able to facilitate essentially a, a larger operation that you have going on? Sure, sure. One of the things that uh, I do is I provide sort of a back end for people. So I work with one of the franchisees to provide marketing support and other support of the website, et cetera, um, doing signage, that kind of thing. On average, uh, the number of customers is about, I'm sorry, number of employees is about 10. The Austin store, I think, is the largest store with about 18 employees currently. Um, we've had as many as 28 at the Austin employees at the Austin store. It fluctuates, but it tends to average around 10 or so. This episode of The Match Slip is sponsored by Crash CityCon, Roanoke, Virginia's premier gaming and fan convention. It's tabletop gaming at its best in addition to role-playing games, board games, there are vendors, and so much more. Play with some of the top game masters in the area, enjoy a casual game in their open gaming area, or learn to play games you always wanted to play. 
Attend Christ City Con August 23rd through the 25th of 2024 at the Berglund Center Special Events Center. You could check out more information at CrashCityCon.com. And what would you say is a unique selling point of whether it be the store brand as a whole or the unique aspects of a particular store that stand out in your mind? Something unique that you may not see at another store that you you go to in, in, in another area of the country? You know, I don't know that there's anything that is completely unique about any of the stores. What I will say is that in our industry, we have a lot of really good store owners who really work hard to connect to their community and support their community. And we certainly do that in our stores. Uh, our stores are, of course, branded. We use, uh, oh, goodness, uh, Yellow Sea and, uh, oh, I can't remember the Panatone for the green. Uh, but all our stores have are very well branded. They're very professional. We work hard to have a good selection of products. Uh, we work hard to have friendly staff, which is easy because we have friendly customers. Um, and we're very professional. Our, the employees at the stores uh, wear a branded shirt of some sort, but we're not real religious about what that shirt looks like. So, and each of the stores is very flexible on which products they bring in. I don't dictate that uh, because different stores are going to be have different needs and with different customers who have different wants. Uh, the Houston store has the Tabletop Tavern, uh, so they offer a beverage and uh, food experience to people. Uh, and they have an amazing game space. Their tables have, they have some uh, private gaming rooms. They also have tables that have the uh, very pretty wooden tables with the logos in it. All the stores have uh, nice uh, gaming spaces. The San Antonio Alamo Ranch store. Oh goodness. What is it called? It's not battling tops. It's I'm, I'm it's escaping me right now, but there's essentially a, a group Beyblade that comes in and plays, plays Beyblade every sat one, one Saturday a month. I think they're expanding that to two Saturdays a month. Uh, so there, because of the uh, enthusiasm of Beyblade players, a lot of stores will not uh, support that. Um, but, you know, the Rose and Rawl at, and Estrella at the Alamo Ranch store really support that. Um, the new store in San Marcos has is being opened by a brother and a sister and their spouses. Uh, so they have a lot of enthusiasm and a desire to connect to the San Marcos uh, customers there. So that's been exciting. Uh, hopefully that store is going to open up in March or April, probably April. Uh, <laughs> the Austin store has is uh, 10,700 square feet, approximately, maybe a little larger. Um, and we've been, that store has been around since 1986 in various locations. And there's just a lot of goodwill and connection to the community. We are really very much about connecting to our community. And with that being said, to, to wrap up the interview here, my final question for you is what are some future plans you have as a, as a franchisor and any future plans you see for potential franchisees for the store's brand? Well, I'm I'm always open to uh, qualified and people who wish to open stores um, pretty much anywhere in the country. I do have people from Malaysia and India and Canada and, 
you know, other locations that approach me and I have to say, no, we're, we're not an inter- international franchise. Um, but I would love to, I, Phil in Columbus, uh, who, uh, who has a larger, younger uh, crowd at his store, would love for there to be another Columbus store. He would love to have uh, someone to uh, work with to uh, expand the market there. Um, so it's really more of a question of finding people with the financial ability to open stores and who have a love of comics and games and uh, the desire to open stores. Uh, and, you know, my limit, I'm pretty much the only employee of direct employee of the franchise. So, you know, I'm probably limited to do, doing two stores a year at the most. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's excellent, David. I Again, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been great hearing you talk about the store and the franchisees and the franch- and being the franchisor and what that's like. It's, it's a different uh, insight that I haven't had anybody on the show to share your expertise in. So I appreciate you coming on. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I've had a good time and uh, so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfectly fine. Is there anywhere people could find out more about the store if they're interested? Sure, sure. Um, at www.dlair.net. Uh, we have a nice modern, uh, new website. We are no longer in the cutting edge of 1990s, uh, technology. Um, actually one thing I should say is one thing we have at all the stores or almost all the stores is a store lair beast. So we have cats at several of the stores, which our customers love and, uh, we love, and, uh, they have a goodness what is it called something dragon that's lizard <sighs> my memory is escaping me. but you can check out the lair beasts uh, at dlair.net that's very cool and i'll be able uh to add a link into the show notes so people could uh take a look at that if they're interested again david thank you for coming on thank you very much you have a great day and uh thank you for what you're doing Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And you have a great day as well. And for everybody else listening, I hope the same for you. If you're interested in checking out any of my reviews, my personal reviews of the stores I visit in person, feel free to sign up to our newsletter at thematchlip.com slash newsletter, and we will catch you in the next episode. Take care. <laughs>